Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week now, the world's largest weekly podcast, where every week I have the privilege of sitting in this chair, in this set, talking to some of the world's most influential people, all about the topic of leadership. Now, leadership is broadly defined. It might be about your culture, your strategy, your retention, your recruitment initiatives. It might be about leading in a role outside of the organization, perhaps in your personal life or in a philanthropic or a community initiative. But Franklin Covey has dedicated our 40-plus year history to helping make our clients, people around the world, more productive, more trustworthy, more focused on what's meaningful to them and also how to create great organizations that sustain and last. And after five years as the host of this podcast, I've also written a series of books for HarperCollins called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are now out in print, audio, digital, and in video, where every year with the permission of 30 of my favorite guests, I write a short chapter about a particular transformational insight they brought to the podcast because many times they share these remarkable nuggets but the camera's off or we've just ended. And so I hope you'll enjoy Master Mentors, sort of like chicken soup for the podcast leadership soul. Volume three coming out with 30 new guests and 30 new stories. Our guest today is an icon in the talent development industry. For anyone that might be watching or listening today, if you have a people background, a talent development background, organizational development or behavior leadership background, you know this gentleman's name. He is Josh Burson. He's considered to be one of the leading authorities in human resources and talent management worldwide, spent many years with the Deloitte organization, both a, um, a researcher, practitioner, leader, and I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. He's just released a new book called Irresistible, The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring employee-focused organizations, and he's joining us from his home in Northern California today. Josh, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. I'm excited to be on the number one podcast around the world in leadership, so thank you again. Well, I appreciate everybody. it. It's, it's the hundreds and hundreds of guests that have made the listeners come back each week. They're not here for me. They're here for you, so let's get started on that very topic uh, Josh, for those final few people who may not be a follower of your research or your reports that you've um, helped to produce, both on your own and through Deloitte, will you maybe rewind a couple of uh, decades and reorient everybody to your journey? Talk about the, um, the industry reports you've become acclaimed for developing, and we'll dive into the insights of your book. Sure. Well, I stumbled into this world of HR and, and being an analyst after about 20 years in sales and marketing and business development and technology companies. And uh, originally what I worked on was online learning and the technology and governance and operations of training departments. And so one of the really kind of hallmark studies that started my career in this was called the High Impact Learning Organization, which was really about how training and development departments can optimize their operations. And that led to, I realized how much demand there was, that led to research on leadership development, which we're gonna talk about a bit today, um, and then succession management, and then recruiting, and then pay, and then all sorts of other things in HR. And because I have um, a long background in technology, during this whole period of time, I've also been a technology analyst. So, so we built a company 
that did this, sold it to Deloitte in 2012. I left Deloitte in 2018 and I'm doing it again. And now with even more focus on research, but also on the professional development of HR people, not just business people. So it's been an incredible career for me and I feel lucky to have landed where I am, to tell you the truth. It's, it's really been a joy. Josh, one of the mantras here at Franklin Covey, where I was privileged to be an employee for 25 years and now I'm an ambassador for the firm as an entrepreneur, being privileged to host this and other podcasts for the firm. One of the mantras was a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. And that isn't a mission statement. That actually yeah. isn't even our mission statement, but a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. And the board, the executive team, the CEO, this is not just a, a pithy phrase. It really is, uh, it infuses our values, who we hire, who we fire, how we train, how we invest. You've often this book called Irresistible. We'll talk about some of the secrets in a moment. But in 2023, what makes a company irresistible that people choose to stay. I, I've read that now the average work tenure for perhaps someone from the younger generation is 18 months. I think a 24-month tenure seems like a long time. Well, what are the companies that are irresistible where people choose to stay? What do they have in common? Well, it's a good question because we have reached a point where the, the quit rate or the turnover rate is very, very high. Roughly a third of Americans changed jobs in the last year. Some of that's because of the pandemic and some of that's because of employers. But ultimately what employees or workers want is they want a meaningful job that allows them to express their personal aspirations as an individual, as a professional, to you know, take their God-given gifts and bring them to other people through some organization that they feel a part of. They wanna be paid fairly. They wanna work with people that appreciate the work that they do. They want clarity and productivity so they can do the work. They don't, want to, they don't want a job that's impossible to do. And they want to be able to grow. And so uh, that funny little combination is actually hard to do when you're a CEO worrying about your stock price or you're a startup with your investors breathing down your back or you have a competitor crawling up your tailpipe. CEOs forget about that. And then they end up with all sorts of problems with their workforce. And that's the reason the workforce turnover is so high is the stress on executives has been very, very high during the pandemic and the last economic cycle. And I just think getting back to those principles of how to attract and retain and manage and, and motivate people is fundamental. And even now you see Starbucks and Boeing and many of the companies that have been through some pretty big problems going back to their core people practices again, because that is the ultimate center of a great business is taking care of the people in the company before you take care of the people outside of the company. Josh, this may sound like a cliche question, but if there is anyone in the world, literally anybody in the world that would have their pulse on this, it would be you. This is your expertise. Let's talk about culture post-pandemic, specifically back to work. I was with the CEO a few weeks ago giving a keynote, and it happened to be a gentleman, and he mentioned that they're a relationship based company. And he mm -hmm. believes, as does his board and executive team, that everybody needs to be in the office. It's not a political issue. It's not a forcing you against your will to show up for no reason. It is quite simply, our company believes we're better together. And that was their theme. We're better together. And therefore, they have a now 
complete back to work. We want you in the office. Not to, not to bend your will to us or to show you we're in charge or the pendulum swung too far. It's just we believe we're better together. So if you want to work here, you got to show up physically in the office. Where, where is that pendulum right now? I know that there are a lot of companies that are forcing employees back and there's that news and others that say, hey, we're fine being virtual or hybrid. We should have done this years ago. Anything you would say to the leaders who are wrestling with this decision, who feel yeah. they're better together, but they don't want to lose staff that are now saying, yeah, I won't stay if I have to come back. What advice would you give the C-suite on that conundrum? Yeah, I mean, the advice I would give is to not be too black or white about it because people have learned that working at home or working remotely actually has a lot of benefits. Commute time is reduced to zero. There's more flexibility. People can work in an, in an environment that they might feel more comfortable in. Um, and they might be more productive at home for certain things at certain points in time or certain tasks. So I do think we are gonna drift back to the office and there will be a magnet towards working together face-to-face. -face. But honestly, if we're gonna make any progress in this world of the economy, we should probably take advantage of the fact that hybrid work actually works pretty well and people are productive at home. And so uh, we should accommodate that in certain tasks, certain jobs, certain roles, certain projects, and be okay with it and let those people dial into the conference call and don't ignore them as if they don't exist. Um, but I do agree that face-to-face -face time is very, very important. We lost that during the pandemic. We're now realizing again how valuable it is uh, but I don't think you have to force people back. I think you can re you can encourage them that this is the way we run the company. This is the way we want to run the company. Um, I actually saw something that I wasn't crazy about the other day where a CEO basically said, if you don't come to the office, you're not going to get promoted. And I don't think that sends the right message. Um, so I would just encourage CEOs to not be too adamant about it, but encourage this process to happen naturally. And I think it will. Josh, Three and a half years ago, it was nearly unheard of to think of a senior executive leader that lived outside of the corporate headquarters. Now, there were some exceptions, sales leaders perhaps, but right. you know, the, general, the general case was if you were in the executive suite or in senior management, you lived, if not close to the corporate headquarters, you lived at least one of the regional hubs. And I was with a CEO recently who I'm doing some consulting work, Fortune 500 company, and he mentioned that for the first time in his 40-year career, he hired a member of his executive team that he'd never met in person. This was about a year ago when um, the pandemic was still kind of unsettling, and he did his first executive hire three or four times on Zoom. And he wasn't, he wasn't scared, but he was worried. Like, is this going to work out? I'm so used to connecting with people. Do you think that's, um, is that going to be a future trend that, executive senior level hires, now you might have met them over Zoom once or twice or even in person for an interview, but do you think it's gonna be increasingly that the case that an executive officer lives in Taos, New Mexico and her company's in New Jersey and she gets hired to be in the C-suite but she's 12 states away? I think, I, think it's, I think it's possible, I think it will happen. I don't think it's ideal. I, I think particularly executives have to really get to know each other and spend time together and interact face-to-face -face as much as they can. They don't have to be together every day. I mean, once you really know someone and you trust them, and you guys know a lot about trust, um, 
you can work remotely just fine. But I, I have a hard time believing that that person you had interviewed didn't meet the person face to face before they hired them. I, I think that would be unusual because executive positions are filled with uncertainty and difficult decisions and vague um, problems that have to be addressed um, iteratively. And so, you know, I, I think most senior executives will continue to spend a fair amount of face time with each other um, on a regular basis, but they don't have to be in the same city. I mean, they can meet, I know many, many executives that live remotely from their peers and they fly and meet up every couple of days or every week or two and get together face to face. That's very common. Josh, let's talk about uh, what makes companies irresistible. The book yeah. really is organized around the shifts that you've seen happen in the workplace, uh, a shift from uh, work, not jobs, from coach, not boss, to coach, not boss. Right. Uh, culture, not rules. Purpose, not profits. Right. You talk a lot about leadership in the book and the role of manager. You actually have a pithy phrase around how dangerous managers can be, right? Because they now have authority over people and you often see people take that the wrong, to the wrong extent. What do you think in 2023 and beyond the role of the manager is? There, of course, are you know, yeah. millions of them in the workplace in the US alone. Speak to all the managers. Perhaps they've just yeah. been produ or, or, um, promoted from being an individual contributor. Now they are a leader of people. There's a lot of debate between the difference between manager and leader. Let's call mm -hmm. them the same for purposes yeah. of ease right now. What's the role of a manager? Well, well, first let me let me take a step back and talk about why I wrote the book, and then I'll talk about what it means to be a manager today. The, the big shift that's been taking place, and it's really accelerated the last couple of years, is moving to what you might call a post-industrial economy. Most companies and most economies are driven by services, by intellectual property, by design, by innovation, by creativity. In the old days of industrial businesses, um, you would develop a product and you would hire employees who were considered labor and you would have a manager or man supervisors to manage the labor. And the labor was essentially replaceable. If you, The reason we had these job descriptions was that if we lost a person, we could fit another person into this job, sort of like a replaceable part. And the company made money through scale. The more and more and more of these things we made and sold, the more and more money we would make. And now that's not the way companies work. Every company or every employee adds human value to their job in unique ways. And more and more of the routine work is going away. In fact, the new AI revolution is going to get rid of more routine work. So what you're really managing, you're not managing people's tasks anymore. You're managing these individuals, each of whom are adding value to your company and your team and your projects in the way that they can best do it. You, you may not know how they're going to do it best. You may not be the expert at what they do anymore. In the old days, you were. You know, you were the guy that knew how to do it, so you told everybody else how to do it. Now you're more of a developer or a coach or a feedback mechanism, or you're giving them connections to other things in the business they don't understand, or you're helping them get new skills, or you're giving, making them aware of things that they're not doing very well so that they can do them better. So it's a much, much different relationship. And you know, I think that's the fundamental thing that's changed. Um, the reason I called it coach, not boss, is um, you know, many th people think when they become a manager for the first time, 
wow, this is hard. I have to boss all these people around. I have to figure out what they need to do. I need to know what they're working on. I need to micromanage them. I need to understand their goals. I want to get them more goals. I want to check in with them all the time. You don't have to do that. If you hire the right people and you um, divide the work up you know, correctly, which is hard, and you give them the tools they need to do their jobs, you can actually have a fairly light touch on most people and they will do great work. So it's a very, very different role. And the best word I could think of was as a coach. Um, you know, the, the coach of the basketball team is not out there showing people how to shoot. In fact, he or she may not have ever been a basketball player, but he or she knows a lot about the game. They know a lot about what's working and what's not working in this particular play. They know how to co coach individuals. They know when somebody feels off and they're having a bad day and what to do about it. That's kind of the role of a manager now. And that is true in virtually every industry. Josh, it also seems a bit aspirational to talk about purpose versus profits. On one aspect, we hear that perhaps the younger generation, you know, enormously well-educated, and we'll talk about are their values that much different than maybe the, my generation's values, but you hear they want purpose, meaning, environmental impact, and, and, and footprint, and responsible organization. But yet we also know that no company can exist without profit. And many times, you know, margin, <laughs> no margin, no mission, but also no mission, no margin. What's the reality of C-suite leaders that have to focus on profit? That the analysts are knocking them to the curb every quarter, yeah, right? Yeah. They're going Scott, off the ranch. Hang on, okay, so, so everybody's got this wrong. Profit is not the goal, profit is the outcome of something you're trying to do to solve some problem for some customer. Um, and so the way companies are formed is they start with some passion to solve a problem that no one else has solved. And they're gonna do it differently or better or higher quality or at lower price than anybody else. And the company gets started and it realizes, wow, we can make money at this. And they do more and more and more of it and they make more and more money and all of a sudden they're chasing the money and they're following the numbers and they maybe they go public or they get a bunch of investors and they're constantly worried about more profit, more revenue, more profit, more revenue. And they kind of forgot where they started. And sure enough, when you drift out of your core and you start doing things you're not very good at, there's more competition. You don't understand the customer as well as you thought you did. You start actually floundering and the core business that you started with probably isn't being taken care of. And that's the point. Not that purpose is some grandiose sort of religious belief in you know, the greater good that you're trying to create for society, although that may be part of your purpose, but what is it that brought you together as a company in the first place? And what I find is most companies that lose their way lost track of what that was. And they tried to do too many things and they became too profit centric. Um, once all you're worried about is profit, um, it's pretty easy for a competitor to take away your core business because they're thinking about the thing that made you what you are. Now, being profitable in the mission or purpose you have, that's the tricky part. And that's actually, to me, the craft of business. The craft of business is not coming up with a problem and saying, hey, let's go try to solve it. It's figuring out how to solve it in a new and innovative and profitable way. And that's where creativity and innovation and hard work and people management comes in. So, so that's really the purpose of this chapter. 
And I, you know, I interview Ikea in there and Unilever and, you know, a lot of, even Boeing, by the way, you know, really is not in business to make a profit. They're really a technology and science company at their core. And that that was really their aspiration. If you can't remember what it is that kind of wakes you up in the morning to make your business work, what is the problem and the mission you're trying to achieve, um, then you've probably kind of gone down, down that path a little too far and you need to back up a little bit. Josh, speak to me as a parent for a moment. I have three sons with my wife, Stephanie, that are uh, 8, uh, 11, and 13 now. And I'd like you to kind of project six, eight years in the future. Who knows where AI will be or chat GPT. Yeah. Uh, assume they've got some technical skills, whatever that is, right? Whether an engineer or a lawyer or whatever. What, what skills as a parent do you need to have me ensure my sons are developing to thrive in a 2030 economy? Well, I have two kids, they're in their 30s. I, I, I think there are two fundamental skills that will guarantee your success, regardless of what you wanna do in your life. Number one is hard work, is feeling that work in and of itself is a good thing. You're not just working for a paycheck, you're not just working because you have to, but that if you find a job that fulfills your personal aspirations and goals as a human being, you will work hard at it and you will keep at it and you will iterate on it until you get better and better and better. So that grit, that work ethic, um, you know, people will do succeed because of that. The second is the ability to learn. Um, You know, I'm a pretty highly educated guy. I've got two master's degrees and probably far too much academic education, but I am learning every single day. I mean, I go to YouTube, I read books, I read magazines, I talk to people, I ask people questions, and I'm in my late 60s, and I'm still learning all the time. And if your kids feel this thirst and self-confidence that, oh, you know, I can learn that, I'll figure out how, I'll figure out how to do that, um, that will drive them into the future because they're going to live a long time. The difference between, you know, your kids and and people my age is they're going to live into their hundreds maybe 110, 120, I don't know, the longevity keeps growing. So they're gonna have a very long career. They're gonna you know, witness many different economic cycles and technology cycles and industry changes. And as long as they're willing to adapt and learn and don't feel constrained that, well, this is all I know how to do, they'll have a career as long as they want. And so those are the two things that I would, I would try to um, you know, inspire them with, Scott. Josh, what have you learned to be not true about the great resignation? Were people going across the street for eight more thousand dollars an hour? Were they quitting their leaders? Were they quitting cultures? It was all just an opportunistic, you know, um, 18 months and it kind of, they all came back. Like what's not true about it and what should we as leaders have learned about the great resignation or whatever you want to rename it? Well, you know, the way, what I would say I've learned and not learned is the, what I call unquenchable resilience or energy of human beings is that when you put them under stress and you make their life difficult because you're not managing your company well, or there's a pandemic or whatever it is, they adapt and they will adapt inside your company or they will adapt elsewhere. Um, You know, human beings are survival animals. We learn and grow through our entire lives. 
And so your job as a leader, as an executive, as a manager is to create an environment where they can uh, do that in your company despite the stress. The reason we had so much job change is that companies shut down operations, they moved people from place to place, they redeployed resources in massive ways. And I, th I think you know people were just basically burned out from the pandemic and couldn't deal with it. Um, there was a lot of money floating around from the federal government that helped, so there was more support. Um, and I don't think companies had, in the early days of the pandemic, enough time to think about the employee experience that they were creating while they were trying to keep their company afloat. I think later in the pandemic, they did. I think, you know, maybe halfway through, most CEOs took a step back and said, whoa, we've got a mental health problem here. We've got a turnover problem. We've got a training problem. Now that we've survived this transformation into the pandemic, we got to take care of the people. So I, I saw it change. I mean, the employee engagement and turnover numbers are still sort of down, but, um, but I think we're coming back to a more rational way of thinking about workers. Um, so I, I, that's my interpretation of, of what happened during the, you know, the, 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 the pandemic. I don't think most people quit just because they wanted to stay home. I think there was just too much stress in their lives and the company or manager they were working for maybe didn't give them the flexibility they needed to just survive through the stress that we were all dealing with. Those companies that did though, kept their workers and hired a lot of uh, new people. So, um, you know, the unemployment rate still is very, very low. There's a lot of jobs and uh, a lot of people, very high percentage of the workforce is working. Josh, I think I read recently where you wrote a piece in HR Zone that you mentioned that burnout really is a, a management leadership issue, not a personal right. issue. Uh, riff on that topic for a few minutes. Yeah, I, I, re I really think we've made a mistake by thinking about mental health and well-being as an employee issue. It is partly, I mean, we need to give employee fair play, employees fair, play, fair pay and a work experience that's um, productive. We can't overwork them. We have to give the, keep them safe at work, et cetera. But you know, if management is breathing down their neck, micromanaging them, um, giving them too much to do, not being clear about what they're being held responsible for, forcing them to go in the office and commute when they don't really think they should, not communicating clearly, that creates a massive amount of stress on people. And people will will stay at work and feel terrible and not tell anybody. You know, I read a study by the American Psychological Association, and I mentioned this to a bunch of CHROs, that 40% of workers go to work every day frightened, frightened that they're gonna get in trouble, frightened that their boss is gonna yell at them, frightened they're gonna make a mistake. That's an indication that I think 99% of workers are trying as hard as they can to get work done. And research by Microsoft that came out late last year, 87% of workers believe they're highly productive. The bad part of that survey was that only 17% of executives believe their workers are high, highly productive. And that is not the fault of the employees, that's the fault of the leadership. Creating an organization that allows people to be productive through the organization design, through the goals, through clarity, through not giving people too much to do, to, through telling people what's important, giving them the skills and the training they need to do their jobs well, that reduces stress in a tremendous level. And we, we just did a whole study on that. We call it the healthy organization. 
So, you know, I kind of feel, you know, that we maybe over-rotated towards, let's give everybody a bunch of mental health programs and, you know, exercise and fitness and sleep support. And then let's just tell them we, they got to be in the office all weekend because we got to get some work done. It doesn't work that way. Uh, our time is ending. In many ways, you've done this, but I want to have you give us a uh, fast-paced masterclass in leadership. For everybody who's listening or watching that is a leader of people, and they want to create an irresistible organization, in many ways, your book is a roadmap to just that, shifting to the new style of work, as you call it. What do you want leaders to be thinking about differently as a result of listening or watching today's podcast? Sure. Well, very briefly, I, I think there's two or three things that you have to do as a leader. Number one is you have to know the business and the operation that you're responsible for. What are the characteristics and traits and skills and behaviors that create success in your company? And then select and hire people that fit that profile because that is the number one decision you make as a leader, which is, is who to hire. Um, and some people will fit and some people won't, and it's okay if they don't fit, uh, don't hire them. Second, once you've got a team, assembled team that's working in your group, be crystal clear and discuss with them what are our priorities. And you cannot do that enough. There's always distracting priorities, new ideas, things that come in from the CEO, you know, random distractions. And every time that happens, you have the potential to upset the apple cart. Yeah. You know, the four-day work week, which is actually going very well, where people work four days but get paid for five days, productivity went up. Actual job output went up when we had four days to work instead of five. And the reason for that was not that people were doing their, you know, doctor's appointments on Fridays. It was that they had to refine and clarify what was important and what was not and get rid of all the meetings and you know, staff you know, bureaucracy that was getting in the way. So that's number two. And then number third is this idea of being a coach. Support people, develop them, give them feedback. Um, try to figure out what you can do to make them successful in their jobs, empower them. Let them turn the job into the job that's best for them so they do it the way that they think it should be done instead of you telling them how to do it because you may not know how to do it. Where you can, of course, give them as much direction as you think you should. But, but those are really the three things. And then if you treat people fairly and you listen to them, they will tell you when something's wrong. They will tell you when something's broken. They will tell you when we have a bad business process. They will tell you when we had a wasted meeting and it's not worth their time. So the fourth thing I would say is listen, listen, listen. So that's kind of it, Scott. <laughs> Josh, let's end on this note. I don't love the word trends because trends usually aren't aligned with principles, right? And at Franklin Covey, we gird everything we do in principles of leadership. To that extent, if you're looking at what's coming next for organizations, no one could have predicted the pandemic. Anything you can kind of see on the horizon is the four-day work week coming, is purpose and meaning what the younger generation is looking for? Is it purpose over profit? That's not what you said. You said it was both. Yeah. What's coming next that you want to equip boards of directors, C-suite leaders with so that they're not caught unaware that they're thinking about what their workforce needs in the future? Well, I think the, the most telling data that 
characterizes what's next is a PwC CEO survey that came out about two weeks ago where 60% of the CEOs said that they thought their business as existed today would not exist in 10 years. And almost 70% of them said they wanted to spend more time on transformation and less time on execution. And the story, what that basically is saying is that thanks to the pandemic response, inflation and AI and all the other things that are happening at the moment, companies are changing faster than ever. So, you know, I think the thing that characterizes business over the next couple of years is how ready and flexible and what kind of muscle do you have for change? When you get this chat bot in here that looks like it's gonna replace your job, are you ready to put more, to, to add value on top of it? Are you ready to eliminate or redesign the team you're in and move those people to higher value when a new piece of technology arrives? Um, and that's just a small piece of it. Redesigning the way people work together, letting people work more flexible hours. I don't think the four day work week is a bad idea. I think a lot of companies are experimenting with it. So, so that to me is the big um, you know, learning from the pandemic is that people changed a lot faster and companies changed a lot faster during the pandemic than they realized they should. That change is going to continue and accelerate. So if you build strong relationships with your people, great programs to uh, train them and enable them to do work well, you'll be fine. Uh, but that to me is, is, is where we're gonna be going into the future. Talent advisor and human expert, Josh Burson, you're the author of the new book, Irresistible, The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring Employee-Focused Organizations. Thanks for joining us today, appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, great to be here. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.